Hello and welcome to Launch Left Podcast. I'm Rain Phoenix, your host. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. Follow us on all socials at Launch Left. Today's very, very special guest is Jewel. Please welcome her to the show. I was thinking about you last night when I was listening to your record and your first of all, your voice, I literally was blown away. I mean, I've always thought you had a beautiful voice, but this record is such a powerful showcasing of that powerhouse voice of yours. I was like, what? I was, it made me so, so happy to hear you just belt it out. And with the title Freewheeling Woman, I, I couldn't help but think of Janice while I was listening to it at times. I was like, whoa, it just reminded me of that, like, you know, no holds barred singing style and your pitch, everything. I, you know, as a vocalist and a singer, I was just blown away and so impressed and it was inspiring. So that makes me so happy. You know, I've always had a difficult time recording my voice, I guess, because I was raised on stage. I don't, I'm not a very cerebral singer. I am a very technical singer. Like I love the technical aspect of singing, but like once I'm on stage, it's just like this heart rush, you know, of feeling like what people need in front of you. And it just pulls things out of my voice that I've never been able to do in the studio. And I've never liked the studio singing because it's so sterile. It's kind of like porn versus sex. It's like, <laughs> it's like so fake. It's like this wall and a mic and you're like, oh yeah, I'm so into this. Oh, singing. <laughs> it just doesn't, it just isn't the same as having an audience there. So that was one of my major things with this record for me was a writing for my voice because I've never written for my voice which is so dumb I don't know why I've never written for my own range um and then also just trying to figure out a way of singing better in the studio uh, and pushing myself a little harder and really just about creating the environment I just created a live environment which really helped so uh can you paint a picture for me of what that looked like was it baffles between every player and you were all in the same room was it two separate rooms and every yeah I'd love to just imagine it if you don't mind yeah i cut it with butch walker who's just a really versatile musician and writer and producer we didn't write anything for the record together but my style of wanting to blend like finally bring together all my musical styles you know usually i did a folk record a country record a pop record whereas this one i was like i want to get them all together because they're all me and so as a writer that was a task but then as a producer you're like all right how do we let this all come through, especially because I was weaving this new element of like soul music into it and very 60s soul um, stuff. So we cut it live. The whole band was in one room, no baffles. And then I was in a baffled kind of makeshift vocal booth, if you will. Uh, still a ton of bleed through, but enough separation that we could, you know, make sure the drums weren't just ruining a take or something like that. Right. God, that there is such a difference, I think, to that. And it plays in terms of listening to the record. There's something about the energy of everyone is actively playing at the same time when a capture happens, you know, that's very different than overdubbing, or like you said, this sort of more sterile version of music and you and that aliveness really comes through on this record you 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 you, it's palpable that energy of a group just you know attacking a song and I really loved that feeling it's it's rare it doesn't have I mean specifically 
more and more things feel very, you know, manipulated and, and, uh, and, uh, overdubbed. And that's cool too. Like, I don't have anything against that, but you can feel and hear the air in the room. And there's something really powerful about that. It brings more joy. To me, it was a very joyful thing to listen to because you could kind of just feel everyone getting into it. Um, yeah, the opening track, um, Long Way Round, I wanted that to stay the opening track because the way it is on the record is how it happened. We'd rehearsed the song a couple times. We were about to record it, but people were still getting, were getting their sounds together. And the drummer was, you know, just kind of playing this his groove while we were getting all of our sounds. And one by one, everybody kind of just came in and started vibing. And it was such a visceral vibe that thank God the engineer had pushed record and I was still working on my lyrics. I hadn't really figured them out yet. Um, I was tinkering with it still. And I started just sort of humming absentmindedly. And then all of a sudden, the vibe just clicked. It was literally like you could hear a click. And all of us were like, what's happening? Like, there's such a strong vibe in the room. And so then I just started singing it. But, you know, it's interesting. The bass is coming in in a different place. And the it all just starts coming in in odd places. And then I start singing. And it was an improvised verse, just totally making it up. And it was it. Like, that was it. That was the take. That's how it happened. And so that lead in on the record is the lead in of how it unfolded in the studio, which that's just magical. You know, you can't make stuff like that happen. And so it's always so special when you are cutting it live like that. You don't give a fuck uh, about it having to be what someone says it needs to be to meet some quota or get somebody to sign on or to feel, you know, you've always been like, I need to express myself. This is what my expression is right now. You know, take it or leave it. I, you know, I, it means a lot to me. So I'm, and, and, and the joy comes from me feeling that, I, that I accomplished what I set out to do, whatever that might be, even if you're not sure at the beginning. And I just love that, Pat. That's like what we champion so much on Launch Left. I know it's hard. I do. That's why I admire you. So I'd love to hear a little bit about, like, even perhaps the toil of that sometimes when you feel swayed. Art is an interesting thing. You know, you do it or I have done it because it was a medicine and it was a salve. I was trying to, it was like being an herbologist. It was like mixing herbs to put on my own burns. And so I was trying to write songs for really specific reasons for myself to soothe pain um, or to bolster myself. And so it was very personal. And yet also the connection that's possible when you do something really honest and really vulnerable, the human connection that can happen is like, uh, it's really unique what can happen with music. I think especially when you get to be on stage and try to peel your skin off and open up a vein and so people can really feel you. And that's a real different intention, right? It's the intention to connect. And to use your technical ability, your words to try and connect really deeply to yourself and into another human. And then there's something just very sacred in it. It's a sacred thing to be able to participate in. And then seeing that that medicine you made for yourself ends up feeling like medicine to other people. Um, and different songs affect people differently depending on what their pain is. And it's so it's so beautiful. And that's a, just a different intention. You know, if your intention is to be famous and popular, that's great, too. It doesn't mm -hmm. make one better than the other. It just means you're solving for a different math equation. Mm -hmm. For me, I was just trying to solve for, A, my own pain, and B, I wanted to maximize connection. Mm -hmm. And so I always tried to make myself as 
transparent as I could um, so that the connection, whatever was flowing through me to you back out, <laughs> it was maximizing the connectivity. Um, and so not taking it personally and not getting egoic about it and making sure you're staying a student. And it's an interesting thing to become a professional musician because there's that, right? That's just an artist sort of take on why I'm doing music. And then you get into a business. And if you're in a business, you should only be in a business if you want to be in the business, right? Otherwise, you're going to make records in your bedroom. Um, and so then for me, it was like understanding how does this business function so that I can protect my child, which is my music. You know, that's an innocent thing. It has to stay pure. It has to have really pure intentions. But now I'm in a structure and I have to understand how do I protect and keep this thing pure? And for me, that was making sure I never leveraged music or I never was in a position to have to force my music to perform well. And that meant living on little money. It meant turning down a million dollar signing bonus when I was a homeless kid and got discovered. It meant signing contracts and setting up contracts to protect that baby. And it always comes down to money. You know, it, it really does. Like if you want money, you're going to leverage your kid. For me, I come from agriculture, and so it was like I was getting offered a million-dollar signing bonus to leverage fruit that I didn't even have a seed made. I didn't even have a record made, you know, much less fruit. Like <laughs> A seed is the first thing. You have to grow roots and build a trunk. It's a lot of hard work to grow a tree. Then a side effect, a weird phenomenon is the fruit. Well, I was trying to sell fruit before I even had a seed, which just felt inherently really dangerous to me. So it was turning the money down. It was setting up a deal structure and understanding the business to make sure that I could make the kind of art I wanted, which for me was folk music, you know, the height of grunge. The odds of that working, I thought, were quite slim. And that meant I had to be willing to live on the thing. I had to be willing to be very affordable and cheap to a label so I couldn't be dropped should the record fail. And so you pay prices for the vision, you know, for making the music that I wanted. I had to make sure that I had a strategy that supported it should my vision fail. And so I think like that odd juxtaposition of being an artist, making sure you're making something that's authentic and, and interesting to you. And then realizing I'm in a business where I am trying to connect to human beings and I'm in a really weird inorganic business trying to make something organic. And what strategy am I going to put in place just like parenting to be a good parent to make sure that child has the best chance of succeeding? from my personal experience, know enough people to know that when you go for just one thing without an intention behind it, it can be difficult. So we like to create this sort of intentional space to talk about that depth of uh, courage that it takes to do something like you did and choose instead of money, you know, your, your, basically your control of your own music and what you wanted to do and not having to sacrifice that um, it was funny because I almost didn't sign my record contract when I got discovered because it scared me a lot. Um, I had such an abusive background that, you know, and a lot of trauma and agoraphobia and social anxiety. And, you know, you, I knew if God forbid I ever got famous for somebody like me with my background, that would be a real recipe for disaster. It's every TV movie or, you know, film movie you've seen about any musician. And so I only signed the contract under really specific terms with myself. I had to get really clear about my hierarchical like decision-making process. Why was I doing this? And what was I unwilling to sacrifice? And for me, you know, when I moved out at 15, I, I knew the odds were against me being happy. 
And I wanted to be happy more than anything in the world. I wanted to learn if that was a learnable skill. Was it a teachable skill? And so for me, I signed my record contract with the promise that my number one job would be to learn how to be a happy whole human and not a human full of holes. And my number two job would be to learn to be a musician. And that under that, there was a subcategory of I wanted to be a great singer songwriter more than I wanted to be famous. Not that you can't be both. There's examples of people being both. But you make decisions every day. And so you have to be making them based on something. So it caused me to turn down uh, the real world, for instance, was, you know, a huge reality show, one of the first reality shows in the 90s. And my label was like, you are literally going to live in a house. You're going to go from being homeless to living in this house. We'll watch you make your record. The whole world will get to see it. And it'll be like this instant. And I was like, no, like I turned it down. And I remember my label being like, come again. This is the most extraordinary opportunity. Your homeless ass is going to be offered. <laughs> I was like, no, it, I had this motto of hardwood grows slowly. That would put fame ahead of my ability to even make art. I didn't even know how to make a record yet. You know what right, I mean? So just right. the inherent danger of it really hit me. And then my record failed for three years. And there were times when I looked back going, was I so dumb? Like, should I have done that TV show? But then, you know, luckily Bob Dylan came along and Neil Young and they just really encouraged me and were like, you may never be famous. You may never make money. Are you a fucking singer songwriter or are you a fucking pop singer? Make a choice. But if you're a singer songwriter, you have a hard road to hoe. It's like a holy calling and it may not work out, but your job is to write songs that speak to humans. And I was like, Yes, sir. That is my job, sir. <laughs> and they gave me kind of that guts at those really critical moments to keep going. <laughs> wow. And that is another touch point. My guess, but you can correct me, is that you were very happy you didn't do real world and that you you know, were able to open for such incredible singer-songwriter legends as those two. Yeah. And even that aside, and both of those things are true, I knew I couldn't handle, I was so psychologically frail that I couldn't handle that type of scrutiny of like living with roommates that are and the camera on you. Like I didn't have the psychological ability to handle that pressure. And thank mm. God I knew it. You know, I don't mm. think I would have made it through as a human without mm. some kind of breakdown in that environment. Mm. And I got to grow emotionally and heal and become a more healed person while also my career was developing. Um, and it just happened at a pace that was better for me. And you know, my first record I did quit on, by the way, like I, I would think I was asked after two years, you know, like, okay, maybe it's time to go make another album. And so I, I did, I started making an album in, in the Bearsville, Flea was there actually. And that's when Dylan asked me to tour with him. And that just changed the trajectory. You know, he was definitely like, you can't be reactionary to radio. He's like, you may never get radio. Who fucking cares? Write songs that are revolutionary and just see what happens. That's all you have. Um, stay solo acoustic. Don't have a band. And I was like, you know what? If Bob Dylan's the only person that likes me, I'm good. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> oh, my God. Absolutely. I want to go back a little bit to what you were saying before about how you set your own kind of guidelines prior to signing. And that was like your your terms for signing um, was, and, and my language would be that you set intention, right? That you set intention for yourself of how you were going to proceed if you took this record deal, that you had commitments to to yourself to not lose your spirit, not lose the core jewel 
and forsake it because you got this opportunity. Um, do you think that that played very strongly into how you were able to form and yourself, not only as an artist, but heal wounds in the process of getting bigger and bigger and being more recognized and getting money and not being homeless anymore and all these things that get, you know, exciting, but also are trappings for many young artists of how, of, you know, self-aggrandizement and suddenly getting lost in substance or whatever might be the thing. Do you think that those intentions you set for yourself were uh, uh, an important part of how you stayed true to yourself? Yeah, I called them my North Stars. Those were the decisions that I navigated by. And I was loyal to them. I didn't betray them. A career is a really difficult thing to navigate. You know, when you look back, it looks like it all fell into place, but it's such a messy, uncomfortable, painful, you're filled with doubt, you know, but you just keep navigating by those North Stars that you know are true. And you have faith that if I keep making decisions in in alignment to my North Star, to what really, you know, I can't compromise and be alive, you know. You have to trust that in the long run that those decisions will create a shape that you'll be satisfied with, you know, at the end of your life. So I did it two ways. One was my North Star decisions. Um, I have to be a happy human, number one. That meant I had to have a real plan. Just like people have business plans, you know, like career plans. I did a plan for my happiness and Mm. I had to develop it myself. And I did. I sat down with my little journal and I looked at like things that were painful and habits that were probably going to land me in jail, like shoplifting and shit like that. This is before I got signed. And then I had to have a plan for what was I going to do different today than I did yesterday. And if I didn't like how I was feeling today, what am I going to do different tomorrow? And how will I know if it worked? Like I had to be incredibly like logical about it and, and grounded and like have steps, just like I had steps in my career. Like I would go tour college campuses because they had radio stations and maybe the radio station. It was a plan. You know, you don't know if it'll work, but it's a plan. Um, And so I think that's incredibly important. The other thing I did was, well, A, your loyalty to them is everything. Those North Star decisions don't matter at all if you sell them out, right? So you have to be loyal to them. And then the second one was what I called my deathbed decisions. When I had a decision to make, I would, you know, even if they were in alignment to these grand North Star schemes, you know, do I make another album right now or do I take a break maybe or something like that? First I'd go, does it support me being happy? You know, what? how does that play in? And then if I look back on my life from my deathbed and I think about this decision, did it matter? Does it matter? Am I going to be on my deathbed going, yeah, I sold an extra million albums. That was so hard. Or will I go, I could have been a mom or I could have been a better mom. And so between those two perspectives, those really helped me make decisions that were really hard. Like, you know, my first album suddenly just took off like bananas. We never thought it would go to the level it did. I think I'm one of the best selling debut albums of all time in history, which is bizarre. You Are Meant For Me became the longest running single in pop history. That's weird. Like, who would have thought that would happen? And then I wrote this song about hands and were God's eyes. And that became a hit. So weird. My second album. I got so famous by the time I was on the cover of Time magazine that I couldn't walk across the street. I couldn't go in the bathroom without people following me to hear me pee. I hated it. I was so unhappy. I couldn't psychologically adjust to the level of fame that I had that I did quit for two whole years. And the word mental health break wasn't around. Right. 
I knew I was going to have a psychological breakdown. You know, mm. Mariah Carey had been hospitalized. We'd seen a lot of artists have like these breakdowns where they had to get hospitalized. I knew I was close. And so I took myself out of the game. I quit for two whole years. Of course, the press was wildly unkind. It wasn't like, oh, good for Naomi, you know, what's her name? Osaka, right? For taking a tennis break. The world is much kinder of those decisions now than they were back then. But again, it was me trying to be loyal to those North Star decisions of like, I'm unhappy. I am wildly popular and I am immensely unhappy. And that's my responsibility. Nobody else's responsibility. I have to figure out why I'm unhappy. And then I have to create a strategy for how do I move forward and expect something different. How will I do this and be happier? And maybe that meant I quit music forever. Maybe it meant I'd go be a chef. I had to explore for two years, like, what do I actually like? Turns out I love music. I just didn't like fame. And so I did a really weird strategy of where I started to tank my momentum and take years between albums, and it would kill my fame. And then I'd go do a different genre because I thought that was fun and interesting. And I had to work hard to build up momentum. It was a ton of work, terrible to do just career-wise. But it was great for me as an artist and as a human. And I was willing to pay the price of having to basically start from scratch with every genre I was doing. And that's sort of, again, that's just the ways that you try to make your career work for you so you're not just working for it. Mm -hmm. I think this will probably parlay into your organization and the work that you've been doing now for over a decade um, in regard to helping the uh, youth with mental health concerns people who are going through struggles with mental health but to me from your from how you share about your upbringing to the way that you had the not only foresight but the self-possession to create these north stars stay loyal to them through all of this changing, moving day-to-day -day life, including fame and navigating all of that, through the, you know, your background initially, how did you first kind of find that part of you? What, was it, is it that you recognized there was consciousness in you that was that was in, you know, could you recognize this being inside you? Was it a spiritual awakening? I find it really remarkable because for a lot of people who come from a difficult background, you know, you just repeat what you experienced. And in your case, you saw through and, and I'm so, uh, what was that touch point? What was that moment that switched from, you could go either way that you chose to create this these North stars and, and value yourself to really care for yourself. I'm, uh, if you feel like sharing, I would love to know. It was a long process. I think the first thing that I think of is I bar sang with my dad. Um, and we started the bars probably when I was eight and I had a front row seat to watching people in pain. I could tell that the common denominator with all of the long-term, you know, regulars, was pain. And I was in pain. You know, my mom had left, my dad began to drink and be abusive. And so I could recognize pain as the similarity, as the common denominator. And some people use drugs and some people used rage and some people used these twisted, like, you know, just sick attention from men, compromising everything for a sweaty, drunken compliment. 
but the common denominator was denominator was pain. And it made me so curious, like, why aren't we taught what to do with pain? Why didn't I know what to do with pain? I was in so much pain and it was so overwhelming. And I'm a real visual person. So I just sort of saw it like this grain of sand, but instead of us making pearls and knowing what to do with the pain to make something beautiful, we keep trying to cover the pain up and just bury it with alcohol or with drugs or with sex or with rage, you know, all these things at a front row seat to seeing. And I sang in bars for, you know, a long time. So I got to see how it worked out. It just didn't work out. And so I just remember like writing in my journal, like nobody outruns pain. You have to deal with it. And so the buffalo is the only animal that heads like directly into a storm. It goes right to the heart of a storm. And so I just remember writing down, be the buffalo, try to go toward the pain, try to get curious. And I had been writing poetry and journaling from a really young age. And when I wrote and got curious, I felt better. It took the pressure off. It it was my medicator. It, it took the pressure and the pain off just a little bit. And so I just kept turning to writing um, as, you know, maybe if I get really curious, maybe I can think my way out of this. Maybe I can really observe what's happening and stop and slow down. I kind of stumbled onto mindfulness. You know, I stumbled onto learning how to be present. And writing is such a great tool for mindfulness because anytime you're observant and curious, you're in the present moment. You know, for you to observe the colors of the scarf behind me, you have to really hear, be here at present and do it. And so I stumbled onto mindfulness. I stumbled onto letting my neurological system, my nervous system, find a dilated, calm, and open state that felt safe and powerful. And it was just luck, I think. I just stumbled on it and I liked it and I wanted to feel that way. And when I was anxious and having panic attacks, I could tell that was the opposite feeling. Mm. And so again, just through like, I think stubbornness of like, I'm not going to kill myself. Like the, the most rebellious thing I can do is figure out how to be happy. I don't want to be a statistic. I don't want to repeat the cycle. And it's very depressing, you know, to move out at 15 and, and realize you're already kind of programmed. The emotional language I was taught was taught to my dad, was taught to his dad, was taught to his dad. It was like speaking English. Yeah. You're going to grow up speaking English unless you go learn French. Well, where do you go to learn a new emotional language? There's no school for it. It was so frustrating. And so maybe it was just the, you know, the audacity of youth of like, I'm going to learn a new emotional language. I'm going to study this and I'm not going to give up. And that stubbornness of like, I'm not going to kill myself. And how I feel is so intolerable that I have to try something different every day until I get the results that I want. I love what you shared about the buffalo, is that the storm, you know, going into the storm, going into the pain, that so often our impulse is to run from it, and then it just gets buried, but it's there and it never goes away. So the courage, it's really about courage. It's And like I said, everybody has the potential, but having that courage and having that epiphanous moment that that is what you need to truly transform that pain or rage or addiction or whatever it is into something that is a more whole and balanced version of oneself. Uh, it is a really messy, it's a messy process. Change is very hard. You know, trying to starve old habits and abstain from them and trying to build a new habit that's actionable, that starts to build a new neural pathway, it's very hard to do. You know, you're not going to do it unless you're extremely motivated. Mm -hmm. And I have a youth foundation. I work with 
kids for the last 20 years, teaching them a lot of the tools that I sort of developed for myself. When a kid is willing to do, they want to be happy more than they want to be drug addicts. That's when things change. You know, Mm -hmm. when you want to be happy more than you want to just indulge in rage, that's when you're going to start changing. When we stop making excuses, we get healthier. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot of self-accountability. It takes looking in the mirror and saying, my happiness is my own responsibility. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what happened to me. That's a tough place to get to when you're willing to say it doesn't matter. My happiness is my responsibility no matter what's happened to me. And bad things might have happened to me, but I have to learn to make better choices. Because I call that a double abuse. You know, getting hit, for instance, sucks. It's over in 0.8 seconds or however long it took to get struck. The second abuse is your inability to trust, to love, to dilate, to soften, to open. That's the abuse we do to ourselves as a reaction to this one moment that happened to being hit. Now, I'm being very simplistic. I grew up in a dynamically abusive environment. I'm being obviously really simplistic, but sometimes seeing these things really clearly is helpful. I'm still saying, it's still my responsibility. I want to be happier more than I want to be anything, more than I want to be famous, more than I want to have a house. You know, for me, that's what being homeless was. It was like, I want to be happy more than I want to be have the security of a home, right? A boss was trying to leverage me. And if I wouldn't have sex with them, he wouldn't give me my paycheck and my rent was due. So I was like, no, I'm willing. I want to be happy more than I want my rent, you know? And you you start to get that, I don't know, stubborn about it. And you will see things shift. It's just a really messy, it's a messy, painful process. You don't know how it's going to work out. But I've never seen it fail that when I invested in my humanity, when I didn't sell out my humanity and I paid big prices, like, becoming homeless, magic happened every time. I didn't know what kind of magic was going to happen, but it's never failed. And I've never seen it fail for my kids either. Mm -hmm. I watched them just make heroic choices. Mm -hmm. And you're like, there's no guarantee. I don't know how it's going to work out. I've never seen it be more magical than anything you could have schemed, you know? Self-responsibility of being able to look in the mirror, not out the window, something we like to uh, talk about here too, is such a difficult choice. It is. You're literally saying, you know, everything that's pissing me off today or yesterday is the culmination of my life story that sucked the parts that sucked, I have a very important role to play in that. And most of that is up to me to change. All of it, really. Um, That's a very difficult pill to swallow. But it is the beginning of transformation, I think, when you can have self-reflection, when you can look at, 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 when you can take responsibility. I think that if we look at trends, um, it tends to be very pendulum uh, esque, pendulous. You know, we go over here to like suck it up, you know, don't complain, get the job done. There's a price to pay for that. You know, we, it's hard on our mental health, it's hard on our physical bodies. Um, now, there's good, right? Gritty, a lot of physical endurance, you know, has good and bad. So then the pendulum swings way over here. And we say, this was abusive, it was bad for our health. People shouldn't have to stuff their feelings down just to keep their paycheck, all of which are true, you know. So our pendulum swings, and that's really good, except we pay a price. You know, there's a good, 
which is we have to be in touch with our mental health. We have to be able to say, I can't, I can't psychologically continue. I need to stop. I'm willing to pay the price for that, right? It's all healthy. We need to have a workplace that isn't toxic. So those are all positives. The risk we run is we lose the grit and the internal reserves of accountability, of just figuring out how am I not going to make excuse and get this done. And so I would say that there's a ton of benefit of we where we are genuinely so good. There's also a risk that we're running of making sure that it's done with accountability. And is it blaming someone else for your unhappiness? Or is it a really accountable and empowered decision? Those things can look the same. It's a nuanced thing to say between victimhood and accountability. Um, between giving speaking up and you know standing up for your rights versus an entitlement to expecting other people to be accountable for your happiness. So we're in a really nuanced area mm-hmm. with an uneducated generation, you know, a generation that doesn't have decades of experience, you know, sifting through the inner landscape and going, am I being entitled and expecting other people to be responsible for my happiness? Or is this a really empowered decision where I am responsible for my happiness? Oh, those are tricky places to navigate. All I can say is that our self-care practices, our spiritual practices should make us grittier and sharper, more perceptive. Um, If our self-care practices are making us less competent, less capable, less enduring, if we're becoming overly precious to where if we our environment isn't perfectly curated, we fall over, that's not actually what we're going for. Our self-care practices, our spiritual practices should make us more resilient. We should be able to go, you know what? I have the tools to endure, you know, the storms of life. I have the reserves to handle, you know, my environment not being perfect. And we also then have to have the wisdom to say, I know how to avoid unnecessary drama and environments where I don't thrive. So that's the, uh, to me, the interesting debate of where we're at now, like metaphysically or spiritually. So I want to talk just a little bit more about your Inspiring Children Foundation. Helping people that want to be in charge of their happiness, you know, helping kids that are suicidal and getting that phone call when they're just weeping from joy and they can't believe that they actually finally got to a place where they're moved by life to the point of tears. It's so fun. It's so rewarding. Um, you know, much like with drug addicts, you can't get a drug addict to stop being a drug addict until they want to, you know, until they hit whatever their bottom is. The only reason people, I think, personally, are drug addicts is because they were in some pain and they found something that made them feel better to help them survive. God bless, you know. Now you have an addiction to deal with and it's really sucky. You know, you talk about that original pain and covering it up with something. It's like now you got to deal with the addiction and still deal with the pain. And so the approach to dealing with the pain is really similar to what I assume it is to I have friends that are, you know, recovered drug addicts. I didn't, um, I avoided addiction, thank God. I mean, don't get me wrong. I had addictive thoughts, addictive, you know, all kinds of patterns, but I just didn't get addicted to drugs. It's a similar proposition. You can't get people to change till they want to. And Mm -hmm. so you can't make a kid or adult, you know, want to change. They have to have come to a point in their life where they're like, 
I'm willing to do anything. What do I do? You know, that's something that we start working with or kids that have often, you know, had no success at treatment centers or, you know, places for kids with suicidal ideation um, and helping them have tools and a framework for moving forward of like, you know, your brain's a liar. Not everything your brain comes up with is true. Just because you're thinking it doesn't mean it's true. You want to stop a minute and write it down on a piece of paper? Like, what is your brain telling you? Like, let's walk through it. And then you get it all written down and there it is. You see it. And then you go, you know, what if, what is the actual truth? Like, what do you think the truth is? And they always have some kind of inkling of what the truth is. And so then using that, you know, it's all very behaviorally based. That's the things that really changed my life. And so they're such learnable skills and you get a result. If you practice them, you're going to get a result. Now, every time you go down self-defeating thought and you stop and you intervene, you have a little self-intervention and go, that's not true. I'm going to call my friend because I'm really believing the lies in my head and I'm going to make sure I actively remind myself. You know, that's just one example of an exercise we do. Um, but it's really fun and it's it's very possible. It's very possible to feel better with or without psychotherapy. And that was just my passion of I want to help people solve complex emotional problems in the most simple ways that we can. And I want to see if it's possible for other kids. Um, and it turns out it is. And these kids are amazing. They're just, they're heroic. Anybody that recovers, you know, from pain is heroic in my mind. Mm. So, so great that that's what you've been, God, it's been a decade, right? Am I right that you've been involved? Years. Whoa, two yeah, decades. The foundation's been there for 20 years. My involvement's been more recent than that. Uh, uh-huh. But if people want to kind of know more about the tools, I do have a website where I share a lot of these tools. It's called jewelneverbroken.com. It's free. It's just a nonprofit website. Um, but there's like communities of people there that, and a lot of our kids are on there too, kind of as mentors and things like that. Um, and then my book talks a lot about it too. It's never broken is what it's called. Um, but if that's helpful to people. Do you have more than one book? I do. Yeah. yeah, I have a, my first book was a book of poetry, and then there was a book of prose, and I did two two kids books, and then this was my first long form. It was an autobiography. When you talk about happiness, which you have, and and choosing to, that you want to be happy over just about every other trapping, which is in my mind every trapping, whether it's fame or is a wish to be happy, but just a miss misfire, you know, assuming that will make us happy, assuming money will make us happy. But you are very one single-mindedly pointed on happiness as its own entity. <laughs> and those things were periphery. What in your life has brought you the most happiness? I think the first thing to realize is happiness is a side effect. It's a byproduct of choices. The same way, you know, a plant growing is a byproduct of a good environment for the seed to grow in. So the problem is you can't just get happy. You can't just love yourself. You know, those are, those are byproducts of choices. Choices are the byproducts of thoughts. A lot of our thoughts are the byproduct of subconscious assumptions and neural programming. And so you kind of have to give up on getting happy because you just can't. I mean, right? Anybody that's anxious, yeah. you can't just stop being anxious. Like, it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like taking out the color blue and just using it. So you have to start looking at like, what thoughts am I acting on? And is the side effect making me happy? Mm-hmm. 
And then you have to be really honest. If you have everything you ever wanted and you're taking pills every night to fall asleep, that's not actually happiness. So you, you're going to have to be willing to go back to the drawing board and go, I thought I was making decisions that lead to happiness, but I'm more anxious than I've ever been. Why? And what things actually make me happy? A lot of times we've never even stopped to ask ourselves what things actually make me happy. You know, I pursued the things I was told would make me happy, but that's a really different thing. So it takes that kind of exploration, the quietness to connect yourself, um, asking yourself those questions. And this world is built for distraction, right? It's not necessarily built for helping us understand how to ask ourselves those questions. But the simple answer is, you know, happiness doesn't lie. Your anxiety doesn't lie. And I, when I learned to make my anxiety my ally, when I learned to make my anxiety like my best friend, the same way, like, if I bad fish and I got food poisoning and threw up, why would I get mad at my body for throwing up? It did its job. It let me know, don't ever eat day old fish again. Well, my anxiety is my body's only way of telling me I'm consuming a thought, feeling, or action that's making me sick. Anxiety mm -hmm. is your car alarm. Why yeah. get mad at your car alarm? Maybe I could get curious about, wait, 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 wait. Okay, I'm so anxious right now. I have no clue what's making me anxious, but I am going to stop. And I'm going to go down and in. And I'm going to go, what was I just thinking, feeling, or doing? And then once I identify it, am I willing to abstain from it as an experiment to see if I don't put that in my mouth, I won't get sick. And once you start doing that, it's like amazing. It starts to navigate your anxiety, starts to help you go left or right. Hmm. You know, put down this friendship that makes you anxious. Put down this thought that makes you anxious. Don't put it in your mouth. What could you pick up instead? And is the side effect that you feel better? And everybody has the power to do that. That's what I love about it. You don't actually need a therapist. I'm all for it. But we have to be thinking in kind of these much more granular behavioral ways if we really want our lives to change. So for you, would you say that, I know I've tried to make it all one blanket statement, what is the thing that brings you most happiness? But it's basically this, the self those tools, the self-reflection and the ability to get granular when things come up so that your day-to-day -day is more about truly being happy than a state of being that is, I'm going to just be happy right now, you know, instantaneous, so to speak. Yeah, there's no shortcut. You kind of have to figure out what things actually agree with you and what things don't. And mm -hmm. are you willing to stop doing the things that don't agree with you? That's where the rubber meets the road. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, I mm -hmm. know friends that know certain diets cause migraines and they're just not willing to quit the diet. That's fine. It's totally their choice if they want to pay the price, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it just kind of comes down to, yeah, are you willing to experiment and start changing your life so that the side effect has the, sh the chance to be happiness? For me, working less made me happy. Being less famous made me happy. I was so counterintuitive. I didn't think that was what I needed, but it is. There is a... There's an importance to being conscious and in the moment. Like you said, you got addicted to being present and, and witnessing what's going on. And that's, that's, that's a beautiful thing. I feel so blessed that I had the opportunity to spend an hour with you and hear uh, what you have to share and your music. Can you share with us how we can find the music when it's officially out, when it's coming out on vinyl, all the good stuff, where we can find you on the interwebs? Yeah, thank you. Um, the new album is called Freewheeling Woman. And it has sort of a soul style, I think, as you as you kind of noticed. 
Um, the vinyl, I think, is coming out really soon. There was a huge delay in the production of it, so it's just now coming out. Oh, it's out now, October 21st. Look at that. My, my uh, friend texted me. Uh, so, yeah, vinyl out now. I love vinyl. Um, it's all I listen to. And then the book is going to come out at some point. I, I need to figure out how to get a publisher and all that, but I, I just finished it. If you go to my social media, I always have links. I'm Jewel. Okay, that's I it. I think on both. I think I'm Jewel on Instagram and Jewel on uh, TikTok, my new favorite obsession. I'm, I love TikTok so much. Oh my it's gosh. Dumb how much I love it. I got to follow you there. Oh my God. I have the dumbest fun time on there. Um, and then my mental health website is jewelneverbroken.com. Okay. And the autobiography is the same name, Never Broken. Well, it's been a pleasure spending this hour with you. And I look forward to the next time we meet and listening to your record more and reading your book when it comes out. Thank you for all that you do Thanks. in the world and for your art and purpose-driven. So awesome. appreciated. <laughs> all, right, all right. I'll talk to you later. Launch Loft aims to create an intentional space that highlights and empowers all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice, but a necessity. Launch Left begins with music, but its ultimate aim is to launch left-of-center artists in all creative fields. 